Welcome to episode 98 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Comes falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. It is that wonderful time of the month again. It is. Question cast. I'm ready for it. Let's do this. Question cast. So we've got a bunch of great questions queued up for today. So let's let's just get into it. Let's go. Here we go. First voicemail. Hey, guys. This is Dan from Minnesota. I was just listening to the Pelagianism episode, and I've got a little bit of confusion about the nature of grace. Um, one of the distinctions you guys talked about was that the medieval Catholic view of grace was as a kind of a metaphysical substance. And the reform position is to deny that in favor of a view of grace that is the, a disposition of favor of God towards the sinner. But then we turn around and we say things like the, that faith is the channel through which grace flows. Um, and I'm a little confused about how to understand that kind of thing. How can something that is not a substance flow through a channel? Um, and I understand it's metaphorical language, um, but how can a disposition transfer flow through another thing? Um, maybe that's something that could come up on the question cast. Thanks, guys. Thanks for your great podcast. I always enjoy listening to you. Bye. So this is a great question from Dan, and I appreciate that he is listening with a really finely tuned ear to our conversation about Pelagianism, which we covered a ton of stuff on that we conversation. Did. It, it was, I want to say it was all over the place because we, we were all around the theme, but we covered a lot of ground. Yeah, it went some interesting directions, but I, I think it was fruitful, but it, was, it definitely ended up somewhere different than I thought it was going to when we started the episode. It was a little intense. And since his question is about grace and some of what we said about the Catholic position on understanding grace is like a metaphysical reality, kind of juxtaposed to the reform view, let me quick give like the summation of some of what we said about how the Roman Catholic view perceives grace. And then you can drop on us the kind of traditional reform view. Does that sound cool? Sure. So I think to really understand his question about is how does grace flow through a channel or does it flow through a channel in the reform perspective? We're putting that up against this traditional Roman Catholic view, which basically claimed that the instrumental cause of justification is the sacrament of baptism. So to understand, I think, grace properly, we need to understand how are we saved? How are we made right with God? And so for the Catholic system, baptism sacramentally confers upon the recipient the grace of justification. So the righteousness of Christ is literally poured into the soul of the one receiving the baptism. And that pouring of grace into the soul is something that's called infusion. So in, in order for people to become righteous, righteous, they have to cooperate with that infused grace. And so that's why we were talking about it being, it must be a metaphysical reality if you're talking about it occupying a space by way of an outpouring or an infusion. And so that's a really different in particular view on grace. And that would be different than what we'd say is like the Reformed tradition. So Give, give, us, give me your best summary on how the Reformed tradition would understand that. Yeah, so... The instrumental cause of justification. For, for the Reformed tradition, um, it might be beneficial to back up a little bit and talk about what we mean when we say instrument. So some of this is kind of rooted in scholastic um, or sort of Aristotelian uh, philosophy. So Aristotle right. identified several different kinds of causes. So you'd have like the efficient cause, which would more or less be like the energy which brings about a cause or an effect. 
And then you have like the final cause um, or the formal cause, which would be kind of like the intended end. So Aristotle talked about this in terms of um, a statue. So you'd have the formal cause or the final cause of a statue might be to um, like to beautify a garden or to pay tribute to the emperor. That's the purpose of the statue is the final or formal cause. The uh, the formal cause would be like the the blueprint or the picture in the art, the sculptor's head. Right. The efficient cause or the energetic cause would be the actual energy that the uh, sculptor employs when he chisels the statue. And the instrumental cause would be the hammer and the chisel that that energy is focused through. Exactly. So you're absolutely right that in the Roman Catholic view, the the grace that's given to um, the believer is a substance that flows through baptism. And it, it's an actual – a substance – we shouldn't think of this as like um, like an injection of medicine. It's not like a a physical thing that's being poured into the brain, but it is um, it is a metaphysical reality that's being infused into you. So the right. instrument of that is baptism for the for the Protestants. Though grace is not a substance; it's not a new reality. It's a disposition that God uh, orients towards towards His elect. And so the 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 basis of his question is how can we speak of in, faith being the instrumental of salvation if grace is not a substance? How can something that's not a substance be poured through faith? And for the Reformed Christian and for the Lutheran to to some extent, um, faith is a resting and receiving. It's it's an open hand, and so it's not necessarily grace that we receive through faith, which is kind of the Roman. Catholic. Um, right. Grace enters through um, faith and through baptism. But in the reform position, it's not grace that we're receiving. It's God's gracious gift of Christ's righteousness. So so righteousness is it's not a substance. It's not true. It's not right to call it a substance. But righteousness is the thing that we receive and we receive it through faith. And all that means is that we trust Jesus to give us his right. So, right. you know, R.C. Sproul, uh, I think it was R.C. Sproul who said that saying justification by faith alone is just another way to say justification by Christ alone. So he's saying that, and, and, and all of that is gracious. So sola gratia, grace alone, means that it's God, God's free gift that, that saves us. We don't merit right. We don't merit his favor. We don't merit this positive discipline. He doesn't love us because we're lovable. He loves us because he loves, he has chosen to love. Um, there's nothing in us that love finds its um, its target. Rather, it's it's flipped the other way that we are made lovable because God has chosen to love us. So it's the other direction from what. Sola fide is saying that there's no outward or external instrument by which God delivers this salvation. It's merely a receiving and a resting in what Christ has done. So. We speak of it sometimes in the same terms as the Roman Catholics in terms of faith being the instrument or the channel that grace flows through, largely because we're trying to contrast the view. So in Roman Catholicism, as we said, faith flows through or grace flows through baptism. It's applied through baptism. Um, you could think of it as like as a, an injection, right? And it's not really an injection, but you can think of it in those terms. That grace is is injected into us, and that injection concretely transforms. Where in Protestantism, we want to say, and particularly Reformed Protestantism, we want to say that what we're receiving is Christ Himself, and we receive right. Him by means. 
not by means of baptism, not by means of work, but by means of faith alone. So that that kind of I think that kind of gets at his question. And that's why this is a really great question because it's getting at some of the nuances that actually have really essentially practical outworkings. Right. So like you already said, for Protestants, the ground of justification remains exclusively the righteousness of Christ, not righteousness of Christ in us, but the righteousness of Christ for us. Right. And that's a huge difference. And where it comes into play is, I think, like Dan already kind of said, some of this is language. We're just trying to express almost like a logical order or sensibility about how these things are applied to us. Right. Kind of a taxonomy of what is the relationship between grace and faith. But where this kind of comes out to play is first, it is based in the Roman Catholic view on baptism, but also penance, right? Right. Because if you commit mortal sin, then you can basically lose your justification. Then you have to somehow become rejustified by way of penance. Right. So that's a whole different kind of weight and that's, and that's heavy, but that flows right out of this understanding of all grace is a metaphysical property. Right. But the second thing would be, you know, the Roman Catholic church basically says that God cannot declare somebody just until under analysis, they are actually just. Right. So you must actually become the thing before God can declare you to be that thing. And we would say that people are just synthetically because they have something added to them. That is the righteousness of Christ. So I think it's okay in some ways. I mean, I guess the final, in the final analysis, we have to make a a ruling. We'll give our ruling here on whether or not you can say in kind of the reformed way, well, grace is a channel that flows through faith. And of course, we, we want to go to Ephesians 2, 8, which is typically quoted, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. I, I would say that it's okay to, to make that claim, but I'm understanding the scriptures there to mean grace is the power of God to fulfill our new covenant duties, however inconsistently we obey at times. Yeah. So I think true grace, according to scripture, is the empowerment of God to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in our present age. So I think you could say that, but it's probably problematic because it can't be differentiated on the face from the Catholic view. And it's so much more than that. And it's so much more freeing. So what say you? How do you feel about that language? In yeah. Reformed rubric? I mean, I think, I think if we understand what we mean by that language and understand that we mean something very different than the Roman Catholic does, I think it's fine. So um, Sinclair Ferguson in The Whole Christ makes a really excellent point that that we have a tendency to separate Christ's benefits that he gives to us from Christ himself. From himself, right. And what we have to remember is that one of the central insights of the Reformation is that salvation is union with Christ. So, so we in the Roman Catholic system, grace is something that God gives to us that is external to himself. In the Eastern Orthodox system as well, it's a created grace. Grace is a created energy that God gives. In Protestantism, and in especially Roman uh, Reformed Protestantism, when we say that we're saved by faith, by grace through faith, what we mean when we say we receive God's grace is we mean we receive him. We receive Christ himself, and Christ is the gracious gift of God that we receive. So it the language can be problematic. And like I said, we're usually using that language because we're, we're trying to contrast it to something. And so we're, we're hedging it along the same terms. We're using the same kinds of things. It's, it's like in a a math equation when you're talking about fractions, right? You want to get the common denominator. So sometimes you have a fraction that you wouldn't normally use, right? You have like, instead of saying one half, you might say two fourths. Well, two fourths is a, a strange fraction to use unless you're trying to talk about three-fourths and compare the, the things to each other. 
if you're trying to compare them to each other, you'll use language that isn't natural language. You'll use something that's sort of forced in order to make the comparison easy. So I think this is one part kind of trying to make those parallels. And in the context that we used it in the Pelagianism, uh, Pelagianism episode, that's exactly what we were doing. We were comparing Pelagianism and Arminianism and Roman Catholicism, all these different things to reform Protestantism. And so we used that common denominator of talking about a change. Um, in right normal on. language, I probably wouldn't speak. I would, I right. wouldn't, I just wouldn't talk about faith being a channel that, you know, faith is arresting and it's not a channel, but we were trying to make those comparisons a little. And again, that's why I'm really grateful for Dan for bringing this up as a question, because what it does illustrate is that these differences are not small. I think maybe for most people, or some people at least, if they're interacting with their Roman Catholic neighbors or family members, they hear the us using the same words, and they understand that the Roman Catholic Church has at least some biblical ties, some fidelity to the scriptures, right. and they may think they mean exactly the same thing we do, but this is very different. And so just yeah. the idea that for Catholics, righteousness must inhere but for Protestants, righteousness is is what I think is called like extra nos, like outside right. of us. And we've already yeah. we've already talked about the ex opere operato the, through the working of the works, all that distinction. But that kind of gets muddled beneath the surface. And so when you actually start to understand these doctrines as we've been talking about them, you realize that there is a lot of weight that comes with them. Not in the sense that there's a weight of glory, but there's almost a weight of shame in performance. Yeah. And so we can say, well, faith is a, you know, grace is a, it comes through faith, but that means something totally different to the Catholic yeah. uh, than it does to you and I. Yeah, right on. So good, good for Dan for picking that up and really throwing that out as a question. I think that was absolutely beautiful. Yeah, I love it when I can tell um, that people who are listening to our show are not just kind of, you know, if you want to listen to the show and it's like background noise for you more power to you. We appreciate people who listen that way. <laughs> but I really love hearing when I can tell people are listening with a keen interest and a, a careful ear because theology right. in a lot of ways is about making careful distinctions and not just for the sake of making careful distinctions, but because we want to be precise and cautious with how we speak about God and the, the things that he's done. So good, good job being careful and precise and listening closely and, and, potentially trying, you know, trying to sharpen our language and all that kind of stuff. I really appreciate that. I, I appreciate that too, because there's just a wonderful expanse between the fact of understanding, well, we are infused with uh, righteousness and therefore we are now righteous and we could lose that versus right. we are simultaneously sinners and saints. Yeah. There's, man, the chasm between that and the behavior that flows out of that. Like I, I really just, the more I've been thinking about his, Dan's question this week, the more I just come to the realization there is a life of difference between those two and how we actually behave. Yeah, absolutely. And so good for him for bringing it up. So yeah. how would you like to do another one? Yeah, let's do it. Hello, gentlemen. This is Jimmy from Philly. I listened to the podcast on Marcionism, and I know how we can avoid being practical Marcionists. And one of the questions I've, or questions I've come up against or dealt with is how do we avoid being practical Marcians with passages that deal with the apostolic era, um, and particularly how to deal with spirits of spiritual gifts in your church with spiritual gifts that we don't really think are around at this in church history. Um, I know that I've heard, while they've not verbalized it in this same way, I've heard continuationists essentially accuse cessationists of a form of practical Marcionism by saying, well, these passages no longer apply to us, which is, which sounds a bit like Marcionism. So 
how would you answer that accusation? How do we treat those passages that don't 100% apply to us, even though they are still part of our scriptures and part of our canon? Well, what you guys do, keep doing the podcast. Grace and peace. So our brother Jimmy in the brother of, of in the brother in the city of brotherly love has a great question following our discussion on Mar- Marcionism on the Heresy Cast series, and it basically boils down to you know these passages of scripture that deal with the apostolic error. He also has a keen ear, and he's asking, well, how do we prevent ourselves from being practical Marcionists? And I think this comes really on the heels of what we talked about. We used it as an example Andy Stanley's sermon heard round the world, basically. Yeah. And we kind of use that as a springboard to talk about the ways in which the church sometimes looks at the scriptures without realizing it can take on a Marcionistic type viewpoint. So you have any insights there? And how do we prevent ourselves from looking at what happened in the apostolic error and somehow committing that Marcion error? Yeah. So I think sometimes um, people have a tendency to inadvertently do this by sort of, I don't want to say they're doing this on purpose, but they kind of explain away a text because of context. So the, this is going to be a strange example, but the, the classic example is when people might say, well, women don't have to cover their heads when they pray because context, right? Now, right. I actually do think there are reasons letter to read that differently. This is straight, man. And I don't think we need to get, but simply saying context and then use it to kind of explain, um, you know, for example, when people want to affirm female. They'll say like, well, in Ephesus, what was happening is women were talking during church. And so Paul's basically saying during church, you shouldn't talk. You shouldn't be disruptive. The women shouldn't be disruptive. And in Ephesus, they, well, there's nothing in the text that says that there's nothing within the that indicates anything of the sort, right? As far as we know, Paul is simply saying women shouldn't speak church. Women shouldn't teach. Um, they shouldn't be producing and delivering doctrinal statements. In- now, right. Now, there, we still have to read things in context, right? So observing and understanding the context, and especially, this is where I think it's key, especially the context that is actually present in. So as as great and important as it is to understand what was going on in this, the shrine, the, the way that people said that you could Corinthianize, referring, that's all good background information, but it's not inspired and it's, it's not something you, doesn't mean we don't take into account. But actually observing and understanding what's going on in the scriptures themselves. And most of the time, what that ends up doing is revealing more of a universal character to, than a contextual script, uh, contextual character. So I think that's the first thing is to really, really let the scriptures speak for themselves and always remember in the back of your mind. And if possible, as much as much as you can consciously in the front of your mind, that every single word of scripture is given to us for our own good, for profit and reigning, so that we may be co- um How exactly each word is doing that is a different discussion to have, but there are no words in Scripture that are not for every belief. That's right really important. Is Marcion, um, Marcion was saying the Old Testament Scriptures are not for us, which is exactly verbatim what Andy Stanley so yes. it's a little bit different. It's not Marcionism with a capital M to say, well, this scripture doesn't apply to us the same way as it did century. That's not Marcionism, properly speaking. Um, and depending on the context, depending on the actual passage, that may be very true. Um, but it may represent sort of a Marcy if you are explaining away 
very clear passages with strained exegesis, especially if you're utilizing things outside of the text in order to inform how you interpret. Right. And when we spoke about this particular subject on heresy cast, we did come back to the point of the fact that the scriptures are really the, we need to examine them in context in, with the full counsel of God right. in front of us. Yeah. Because the theological area of Marcion really came from a single root, which was the refusal to believe that the God of the Old Testament was the same as the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right. And so what he did then is basically made a buffet of the scriptures and pulled them out part and parcel for what he would accept and what he would reject. So what came under attack in particular by way of our discussion was things like the Ten Commandments, which the, the kind of the traditional reform perspective, almost the mostly Protestant perspective would be that they're not a time bound or culturally limited expression of some kind of set of forensic moral behaviors for a particular society, but they're actually an eternally relevant um, expression of God's character. Yeah. And then we see them fully re revealed in Jesus Christ. So getting back to, you know, the question here from Jimmy, basically that perspective is not upheld by all Christians and some even Christians in prominent places like Andy Stanley. So to get to what you were saying about his sermon, I actually pulled that up because I wanted to listen to it in preparation for us talking about this. And when he's expositing the scene of the apostolic round table in Acts 15, he actually declares, and I quote, here's what the Jerusalem council was saying to the Gentiles. You are not accountable to the 10 commandments, end quote. So that's exactly to what's your point. Um, the idea that anytime we basically elevate one of God's expressions in his character over any other one or any piece of scripture over any other part of scripture, we're likely to fall into this place where even if we're not making ontologically separate versions of God, we're, we're falling into possible heresy or at least yeah. we're on the path to something that might be destructive. Because I think if you and I went out and like surveyed a bunch of people and said, would you ever make two God, our God into two gods? It'd be like, absolutely not. Of course not. Right. But this idea of emphasizing, for instance, God's love to the exclusion of everything else that's become commonplace, that is a probably lowercase Marcionism or just the practical uh, and pragmatic collapse of certain doctrines like penal substitutionary atonement that in my mind can fall into kind of this Marcionist like tendency. So I'm with you. Like the way that we avoid this is to make sure that even when we're going through the scriptures, even in our personal lives, that we're giving full weight to the full counsel of God, which means, like you said, even when we, we go through the Psalms or the, the Song of Solomon, every word, I like what you just said, every word is given for our instruction. There's, yeah. there's no words we get to say, well, this is like a subgenre. This is like a, a lower level and therefore it doesn't deserve as much attention. It all is relevant. And yes, we interpret the Old Testament by light of what its full revelation in Jesus Christ. But even... I just dislike those who argue and say, well, even Paul says that the, the old law is totally outmooted and, and not unnecessary anymore. I mean, that, that is a true in a sense, but I think a truly godly person understands that he is no longer under bondage to the law, but he still loves the law of God and meditates on it day and night because that's where he discovers what is pleasing to God and what reflects God's character. Yeah. So anytime we, we see, we're prone to pull away from that, we have to be careful. Yeah. And another thought that I just had that um, might seem a little strange, but I think connects is, you know, we didn't talk about this when we did the Marcionite heresy cast, but another way that the modern church is sometimes practically Marcionite is by ignoring the original languages. So, oh, true. you know, we were, we were talking in Sunday school, we were going through Galatians today, and we were talking about the title Abba Father. 
and you know we're we're in Sunday school. I'm doing a little bit of research on my tablet, and it only appears three times in the New Testament, and it always follows the exact same format. It's the word Abba, and then the in the Greek, it's the definite article, and then the word Father. And unfortunately, in English, we don't we don't we can't really translate the definite article. And so, if you're not if you're pastor, this is I'm not saying every every Christian needs to learn Greek, although a little bit of proficiency in in Greek at least awareness of the differences in the language is beneficial. But if your pastor is not able to and regularly operating out of the Greek, you miss things. Now, in that instance, the presence of, an, of a definite article may or may not impact the meaning all that much. But the definite article is a distinct word in Greek, and every word is inspired. So the Holy right. Spirit put that word there for our profit and for our instruction. So if we are ignoring the original languages, a lot of times we end up being kind of a practical Marxianist without even realizing it, is we we cut out parts of the Bible because in these cases, a lot of times it's not convenient to translate them into English, right? One of, one of the critiques I've had of some of the more modern um, translations is a lot of times they smooth over the prepositions in sentence. And those prepositions in Greek, especially, are central to how Paul builds his art, right? Well, when we gloss over and smooth over those, a lot of times we miss meaning in the text. So I think um, understanding the original languages as much as you're able, um, using a translation that as much as possible is a formal translation meaning that it, it attempts to retain Greek words. It attempts to retain um, every word in Greek is represented by a word in English. I think those things too, even just before we even start reading the Bible, being intentional to pick certain kinds of translations is really important for us. That's a good word right there. I didn't even consider that, but that makes complete sense to me that there's just even having an appreciation for the fact of the original languages and how that original language constructed in a way that's different from English might engender a certain amount of knowledge that is lost in just a casual translation. Right. That's a really interesting idea. I mean, one other thing that I thought about is, you know, Marcionism claims there's a fundamental contradiction between law and love, righteousness and grace. And the charge is basically that Christianity is flawed because of these incompatibilities in the teaching. So in the Old Testament, we have, here's God throwing down with everybody, just wrathing out. And in the New Testament, here, here comes Jesus and he's, He's really almost like, you know, I hate to use this word, but almost like emasculated and, and really loving and really chill. And here's God represented. And of course, that is just like a, a total mischaracterization because we need to remember one of the ways we can avoid becoming practically Marcionite in that way is that the New Testament is filled with God's wrath. It's just that it is finely pointed at a single point, and that is the cross. So it's not like we have less of God's wrath. I think what we've done sometimes is we really bring down the cross to a lower level of God's wrath. We really don't consider it the full punishment of all sin on Jesus Christ himself. And so we look at the Old Testament and see all this, this violence in, in, in war and in destruction and conquering. Um, and we think to some extent, well, that's, that's rightly deserved if we feel that we understand the scriptures properly. Or if we don't, we think, well, that's really unfair of God. But then we get the New Testament and we hardly really appreciate that same violence happening on the cross. Yeah. And so it's remarkable that I think we forget how much wrath is actually in the New Testament. We see a continuity in God's character, loving in the Old Testament, wrathful in the New Testament as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good word. All right. Yeah. Should we do the next one? Let's do it. All right. Let's go. Hey, Tony. Hey, Jesse. Daniel here in San Francisco um, had a quick question, or maybe not so quick, um, but 
here it goes. Uh, from the divine, from the concept of divine simplicity, we understand that all the attributes are actually one attribute, and it is God Himself. Is it possible then to draw a line from that to the gifts of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5, where it's often said that the gifts of the Spirit are also not all separate, like you can't be more loving than you are kind? On, on the face of it, it would make sense and since they come through abiding and union with Christ, through whom we then share that one attribute, um, you know, while maintaining the creature-creator distinction. Um, how do we then make sense of, like, non-Christians seemingly also being or bearing similar-looking fruit of love, patience, kindness, etc.? I'm uh, thinking back to your episode on apostasy and distinguishing between the fruit and sprout. And anyway, um, love you guys. Thank you for challenging me and uh, uh, just giving me always something to chew on. And I will see you guys around at the pub. Bye. So we just have great questions this week, Tony. We do. Seriously, like all, all these questions are like really finely tuned. I mean, I, I love general questions. I love specific questions. Yeah, this and one's this awesome. One from, yeah, this one from Daniel is, is really interesting. Something I hadn't really thought about. So he's basically trying to get at, we, we understand divine simplicity of God. And then he says, well, what about the gifts of the spirit? And we talk about Galatians 5 or 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul writes, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit distributes them. So what do you think? I'll let you go first. Do you think there is this kind of connection that runs through the idea of divine simplicity of God and that gifts of the spirit are kind of given by the same spirit and you can't be more loving than you can be kind? What do you think? Yeah, well, I think there's two ways to kind of tackle this question. The first is... Um, to point out that in Galatians 5, when it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, it uses the fruit singular. So it's not yes. the fruits of the Spirit, it's the fruit of the Spirit. And what that means, more or less, as I understand it, is that when the Spirit is present in the life of a believer and is producing fruit, all of these character traits are present in that the single person that the spirit has wrought new life in exhibits these traits. So I right. think, um, you know, sometimes we can get hung up on um, sort of the uh, ectypal or the uh, accommodated language of the scripture when we're talking about things like divine simplicity. We get kind of caught up in the fact that the scripture appears to use language that contradicts divine simplicity. But human language in general contradicts divine simplicity. So our language is composite. So no matter what we say or do, we are necessarily speaking of God in a way that's not proper. And what I mean by that is that we can only speak about God using a plurality of words, even though God is not a plurality of parts. So, right. so there's, a, there's a limitation in our language that we have to recognize and understand and not be trick, kind of tricked or caught up by. Um, so I think that that can get in here. But the fact that the fruit of the Spirit is a singular fruit, similar to how the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is a singular name, not the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, those are little clues and triggers to us regarding the nature of what's going on in those passages. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that God, um, God, the Eastern Orthodox Church uses a distinction between what's the essence of God and the energies of God. And Michael Horton picks up on this in uh, the Christian faith and in Pilgrim theology and sort of tweaks it a little. And what he says basically is that the essence of God is singular and simple, but that God reveals himself by his acts in time 
and he calls those acts energies. So God, God is simple and singular and his acts are not divided. So in a certain sense, God only does one thing and that thing is to be God. That one thing of being God now manifests in time and in creation in a plurality of ways, right? He creates, he redeems, he, um, he, he maintains all these different things appear to be separate acts to us. But in reality, they're all part of one unified divine act in the same way, God's attributes and even to call them attributes, plural is not properly speaking. Correct. God's attributes are one. So God's love and his, his justice, his holiness, his wrath, all of these things are not a plurality of attributes that cohere to form God, but they are uh, facets or um, they're revealed elements of God's nature. And just as we can only speak of God in a, in a composite way, we can only talk about God's attributes in a composite way, even though we know they're not. Some of those attributes are communicable to us. So God's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, all of those things are in God united. They're, they're one thing with God is simple. But when he communicates that to us, they're a plurality of things. So right. I think the fact that the, the scripture uses some of this language, like the fruit of the spirit, it, you know, it emphasizes that singular when it's talking about this plurality of things, or the fact that it talks about the gifts of the spirit, but the same spirit distributes them. And it, it emphasizes that unity of the gifts, even though there's a plurality of distributions. I think that that hints to the fact those are ways that the scripture is helping us understand that although there's this plurality in what God does and what God gives, that that plurality does not re represent a sort of um, crass plurality of a multi, a division within. Right. So that even in the diversity of gifts, there is a unity right. because they come through the one father, through one God, through one spirit. Right. And I, I agree. That's what I was thinking of right from the beginning was it's almost odd that the word would be singular, just fruit, fruit of the spirit. And then it goes on to list all these fruit. Right. So it's very specific and it's beautiful how the scriptures show us this continuity of unity and diversity. Like we have the Trinity and then we have these giving of gifts. And I think part of that is like really well expressed in the Westminster confession, chapter 26, article one, which reads all saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head by his spirit and by faith have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both the inward and the outward man. So there is this wonderful continuity. And I think it does proceed logically that the beauty of the divine simplicity is somewhat reflected in the gifts that God gives by way of bringing about that unity in in our own internal beings and then corporately as the body of Christ. Like I just love this idea of having communion in each other's gifts and graces. There's something otherworldly about that. You, you don't get that at like a country club right. or some other gathering of people or on social media, it's something particularly special. So like the second part of um, Daniel's question was born out of our discussion about apostasy. And it was something that we talked about ever just so briefly, but it probably bears some more additional or more deep conversation. And that was this idea of trying to understand how do we make sense of non-believers that may also exhibit some of the same quote-unquote fruit or have these characteristics that look Christian-like. So 
I'll let you go again first, and then I'll swing back in. Yeah. So in a certain sense, um, if a non-Christian exhibits something that is um, is the same thing in terms of the outward manifestation as the fruit of the Spirit, we could say then in a certain sense that that comes from the Spirit. because right. um, Exactly. Because God gives gifts to non-believers, right? If someone does something that's good, it's it's a result of two things. The first is the image of God is not obliterated in the fall. So there are certain things that are stamped on the very constitution of man that were not wiped out or obliterated in the fall. No one who is not suffering from a legitimate psychological disorder thinks that it is good to murder their child. Nobody thinks that. And that's not because of some primal human instinct. It's because of the image of God in man that those things are the case. It's also the case that God is actively restraining evil. None of us, even Hitler, none of us were as evil as we possibly could. Right. To our own devices, apart from the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit, all of us would be worse than we are. All of us would be worse than anyone has ever been. Um, So those things we can say come from the spirit where I would draw the line and say that they're not fruit of the spirit or gifts of the spirit is that those things are exhibited as a means of common grace, not a means of redemptive grace or blessings that are given to the church. So um, my manager, I probably could say, has something that seems like the gift of administration. She, she can just see how things fit together. She knows what needs to be done almost instinctively, and she knows how to get them done, right? That's a, that's a key attribute that we see in really good managers all across the board, Christian or non-Christian. They see the problem. They have an intuitive understanding of what it takes to fix it, and they, they, they know how to bring that about in reality. However, the gift of administration, when it's given to a Christian for the edification of the church, takes a specific format and a specific end. The telos of that is the glory of God and the building up of the church. So unless right. someone is, is using their gift for that end, to that, uh, to that end, we should not say that it is a gift from God or a fruit of the Spirit. So when LeBron James, who as far as I know is not a professing believer and is not actively involved in the local church. I could be wrong, but I don't know anything about him that would lean that way. When he exercises his natural talent of scoring ridiculous amounts of points and being excellent at basketball, we shouldn't say that that is a gift from God, even though we would acknowledge that that talent ultimately comes. Because unless it's being used for the purposes of edifying the church, we shouldn't treat it as though it is a gift of the Spirit, the way that the Bible talks right. about the gifts. Right on. There's two things that I've that totally surprised me about our conversation so far. The first is that of the two of us, you were the one that used the math metaphor, and I loved every second <laughs> of it. And the second one was, I just anticipate that LeBron James would be a name that we would drop in the course of answering these questions. Yeah. So that, that was well done. I mean, a math I mean, metaphor and a sports metaphor in one. Yeah. I, I don't even know you anymore. I know. Who am I? <laughs> but the the question is good because Honestly, we shouldn't be surprised that we see in unbelievers some things that look like the fruit of the Spirit. Because to me, this is a difference, not just of common grace, which I think you articulated really well, but this idea of benevolent versus complacent love of God. So God's benevolence is focused on his general concern for the welfare of human beings. And so in that sense, you can basically say that God loves everyone and that he's benevolent toward everyone. So it would make sense that he would, like you said, by the Spirit, essentially give basic good gifts to people in terms of behavior and in generosity and in working together and in kindness toward one another. 
But God's love of complacency, I mean, it doesn't have anything to do with uh, laziness. When we say, or theologians, I guess, say God's love of complacency, it has to do with his redemptive love that is focused chiefly on his beloved son. And that spills out into satisfaction and delight with all those who are in Christ, right. which results in these fruit of the spirit. So I agree with you. I think the, the more I think about this, there's a, a good litmus test, and that should be what you already said. I think somebody who's exhibiting fruits of the spirit are going to make it plain that what they're doing and why they're doing it is for the glory of Jesus Christ. Yeah. So in other words, it's just another place where intent precedes content. And that's going to be the origin of Christian fruit. So for in my mind, fruit-bearing Christianity always emphasizes things like the inspiration, sufficiency, and the supremacy of the scripture. You know, it's never allowed reason or a person's mind or the voice of the church to be placed above or on a level with scripture. Fruit-bearing Christianity always emphasizes like the full sinfulness and guilt and corruption of human nature, which is if you're seeing somebody do something good, even if they're super generous, likely you're going to be able to determine whether it's the fruit of the spirit or not by how they understand mankind and why they're doing it. If they're, if they're talking about the full sinfulness and guilt and corruption of human nature, that to me would be a sign that what they're doing here is not necessarily about uh, trying to make the best of themselves, but they're likely to think that they're pitiable and weak creatures and they have some sense of understanding again if they're if they're making it clear they're doing this for the glory of god you know fruit bearing christianity i think always sets before the people of the lord jesus christ him is the chief object of the faith and hope and religion as as the divine mediator so i'm basically just kind of picking apart and adding to what you've already said but that's the best test i mean i know that we it can get tricky because we often feel like sometimes we in our own circles, even of our own Christian circles, need to discern for whatever reason, whether we're trying to be judgmental or not, whether or not somebody is genuinely bearing fruit. And what Jesus reveals to us and absolves us from is having to do just that. Because yeah. he says, there's going to be tares in the wheat. Don't worry about trying to uproot them now. I will take care of that later. Yeah. So I like what you said. It's probably just best to focus on What's the intent that precedes the content of these actions and these sets of behaviors? Is the, are they bringing glory to Christ? Is the person who is doing them bringing glory to Christ? Like, I'm sure that if, if I came to you, Tony, and said, like, I really loved uh, the sermon that you preached. It was fantastic. I know that you're quick to receive that as a word of encouragement and then to turn around and say, you know, well, the glory belongs to Christ. Yeah. belongs to God. And I do that as a gift to him. And he was the one that really provided, of course, all the input to that. And you know what I mean? Like that's, we're seeing the fruit in action. Now somebody could presumably lie about that stuff, but that's just like, you don't have to worry about it then. Right. And they're just <laughs> heaping up for themselves all kinds of judgment. Right. If they're really just kind of putting on a mask with that. But I, I'm in total agreement with you there. Yeah. And it strikes me just as you were saying that, you know, when, when Jesus talks about the end times and, and the last judgment, that is for me, um, some of the most intimidating parts of the scripture. For and, sure. And the reason is because in the two most stark examples, you have people that come to him and claim his name. They call him Lord and not just Lord, but Lord, Lord, right? There's an emphatic association with Jesus. And he says, I never knew you. And they say, but Lord, we did all these good things. We cast out demons. We fed the poor. We did all these good things in your name. And he says, I never knew you. So all of the outward effects that we can produce that maybe they may be a result of the inner working of the spirit. 
They may be a result of an unsanctified desire of some sort. They may be a result of some sort of misguided motive or just the residual image of God that causes us to look like God in a certain sense, morally, even fallen humans in a certain sense, look like God from an ethical and moral standpoint. That's, that's sure. what the image of God is. That's marred, but not erased. Those things, we can't see the heart. So yeah, every once in a while we have an explicit statement by somebody that, you know, they say, I'm not doing this for religious purposes. I'm doing this because, but more often than not, I think you're absolutely right that only, only the Lord sees the heart. And so the, the things that we see that are, that appear to be good fruit, we can assess them as such, right? We talked about uh, during the Derek Webb episode, we talked about, I mentioned Chris Pratt and how he had talked about praying for his kid. And, and how I was skeptical. I was cautious of that. Well, a couple months later, he basically more or less got up at the MTV uh, Awards and he gave the gospel. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't a fully orbed gospel presentation, but he put himself on the line in a really significant way. And right. to me, like that takes it to the next level. Like there's signs of self-sacrifice. There's signs of of being willing to risk his reputation and his career for the sake of Christ. Um, you know, there's this big controversy with, with James, uh, with, uh, James Gunn, who was the director of gardens of the galaxy. And he, he had some sort of off color, really inappropriate jokes. Um, I'm not even going to repeat the total content here, but he was fired from the, from directing the third guardians of the galaxy movie, which is huge. And you've got different stars from guardians of the galaxy that are, are weighing in on it. And rather than weigh in on it directly, Chris Pratt tweets out of James and he says, we should all be slow to speak, quick to listen. Right. So what he's saying is not, is not, oh, you know, we should forgive James Gunn. He's not saying that. Some people thought it was that. Some people thought it was something else. All he's saying is that the scripture speaks to us and it says that we should be slow to speak, quick to listen. and slow. So, you know, there's different ways for us to look at people's fruit. And it's okay for us to draw conclusions based on those fruit. But at the end of the day, we have to recognize that there's a variety of motivations that drive people. And some of those might look like the fruit of the spirit and some don't. Um, But I I think I would still come down on the the line that if it's the fruit of the spirit, it it will necessarily serve toward the the edification of the body of believers. That for me, right. that's the definition of the fruit of the spirit is if it's not serving there, it either is, is somehow in the long run that we can't see it is maybe that's the case. I don't know. But more often than not, you can, you can draw a straight line between something concretely edifying the church and it being the, and I think that's where we really have to understand. I agree. You know, I'm thinking about all those metaphors that even Christ himself uses in speaking about the fruits. And they're all very stark and explicit, right? So, you know, you don't get berries from like a thistle bush. You're not going to get like a pear from an apple tree. That seems very obvious. And that's kind of what you're talking about is there is a right place to be able to step in and say, well, it seems very clear here that this person is not bearing Christian food. But once we get beyond that, when we're talking about like, well, what kind of berry bush is it? Yeah. That, that's not helpful and probably really just a waste of time because you're right. We want to be focused on making sure that... Probably we're turning that that magnifying glass more inward than we are outward because that's just a plank eye situation potentially. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I think what's wonderful is that when we see this quote unquote like mini fruit or I don't know how, like snack size, fun size fruit, whatever in the lives of unbelievers, 
we celebrate that as God's common grace through benevolent love. That that's yeah. how much he actually loves us. He does restrain us. And in point of fact, I think that's a wonderful starting point for conversation with people, especially people who seem to be very morally grounded because those people in particular have a, a, a kind of a deeper sense that there is a law written on their hearts. Right. And sometimes they're searching for the source of that law. There's just an intent there that seems to be disconnected, though, from a, a prior cause. And here is where we can close the circle, so to speak, through Jesus Christ. Yeah. But it's a wonderful place. We, sh- we, let's, we should just stop being surprised and start embracing it as an open mission field and a way to worship God, even among those who are not believers. Yeah. All right. Let's do one last voicemail. Here we go. Hey, guys. My name is Kyle. And thanks for answering my question about how the state and federal governments uh, should relate to each other. Now, here's my next question. Why is health such a taboo topic among Christians? Ironically, Christians who claim to possess absolute truth have such a relativistic and apathetic approach to medicine. Could part of the problem be rooted in the nature-grace distinction Thomas Aquinas made? What about the possibility that our culture has influenced the church to not want to change the way they live because they have made their stomach their God? Breakthroughs are being made in science every day that are pointing to the source of the chronic disease epidemic that is hitting our nation like a freight train. Lifestyle. Staples in the Western diet, such as vegetable oils, sugar, and modern gluten, which is nothing like the manna that the Israelites ate have been shown to increase likelihood of getting heart disease, Alzheimer's, dementia, diabetes, etc., cancer also, sitting is the new smoking. Yet many Christians that I talk to shrug these things off and act as if I'm crazy. Imagine what would happen if we stopped tending to our lawns and the resulting chaos. We are doing the same things to our bodies, sadly. Thanks for all the hard work you put into the podcast and keep up the hard work. So I'm really glad that our brother Kyle brought this question up because in fairness, this is probably not a question that gets dropped in just kind of a lot of casual conversations. And so he covered a lot of ground here in speaking about all the different health implications of how we eat in our culture and how we exercise and uh, this phrase that sitting is the new smoking. So there's, there's lots of things here, but I think really the gist of his question, we distill it down is what is the Christian responsibility with regard to pursue, pursuing maximum physical health? And that's, that's kind of a broad question, but let's try to tackle it. What do you think? Yeah. So uh, sometimes I'm not exactly sure where to go with this question because it does, it does come up from time to time um, in various online groups that I'm in, because a lot of times, you know, the question will come up, well, is it okay to smoke? And, and some people will say, yes, it's okay. Christian Liberty. And then others will say, no, it's not okay because it's damaging to your body. And then invariably someone else will say, well, so is Dunkin' Donuts donuts. Right. So is uh, playing video games for five hours in a day. Anything else not in moderation. And so, um, but even in moderation, you know, even in moderation, eating a donut is not good for your body. Right. There is, there is very little nutritional content in there's very little benefit to your body besides the just the sheer pleasure sensation of eating. And so the question I think boils down to, is it okay to do things um, that are either not helpful to your body or may even be harmful for the sake of personal enjoyment? 
And this might seem strange, but I actually think that it is because, um, you know, we're given our bodies as a matter of steward, right? right? We're given our bodies to care for and, and to use as we see fit, according to Christian prudence. So that may mean that we, um, we once in a while, we take a risk. We don't have to, right? I mean, I, I don't think that really extreme daredevil kinds of stuff honors God, like the, the crazy people that like take their GoPro and climb to the top of a building, do handstands on the edge of a hundred story building. I think that's stupid. And I think it's a uh, prohibition against murder to, to just throw your life in caution in your life. But at the same time, I don't think that it's necessarily a sin to play football. There's a risk of dying when you play football. There's a risk of dying when I go for a jog, right? I could trip and fall and hit my head and die. That's a possibility. So the fact that we take risks, the fact that we do things that at times are not beneficial to our health for the sake of some other purpose, even if that purpose is self-enjoyment or self-satisfaction, I don't think that that's intrinsic. I think it's a matter of being wise and prudent and using the resources that God has given you in a way that you believe he see fit. You know, there are lots of instances in the Bible where people feast, right? They, they get the fatted calf. Right. That doesn't mean that they're getting the fatted calf and then cutting all of the fat off so they're only eating the, the lean. It means they're eating that, that glorious, delicious, fatty steak part. Right, They're cooking it up, they're grilling it, and they're eating it, and they're enjoying it. And that kind of fat wasn't any better for people's hearts in biblical times than it is for ours now. So we have this precedent in the Bible that at some times, enjoyment is an acceptable reason to do something that, strictly speaking, may not be beneficial, may even be a little harmful. Right. I think we can also come at this question kind of from the other side, because what the challenge here is, is to maybe make your body a temple, but not an idol. Yeah. So you can easily go the other direction. So there is, you know, a a big movement, at least in our culture for healthy eating. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. I think that the Lord would encourage us to be, like you said, wise with our bodies, but Basically, you know, an idol is anything that you love more than God. But I think an idol can also be something that you think about more than you think about God. So if now eating healthy becomes a thing where you become so fixated on that, and sometimes to a degree where let's say, and and I know people like this, both Christian and not, who, you know, in terms of serving one another, sometimes our best service to one another is being in presence with each other, not neglecting to meet, which is both, you know, the Lord's day and also together in other groups, you know, testifying with one another, supporting, encouraging, fellowship with one another. So I do know people that are so health conscious that, you know, if we say, well, let's just go and grab something to eat. um, They'll decline that opportunity based purely on the food because they don't want to consume that food because they believe it's outside the scope of what's healthy for their bodies. Yeah. And so they're actually pulling away from, the ministry of just being in the presence with God's saints and just interacting and fellowshipping for the sake of food. So in some ways, I feel like this is similar, but to a lesser extent, like the Sabbath, because the body is for the Lord. I mean, your body has been given to you for one reason, to be an instrument for glorifying Christ. The way you use your body and the way you take care of your body should communicate that the glory of Christ is all satisfying, but the Lord is for the body as well. So Paul also says that not only is the body for the Lord, the Lord is for the body. So Christ is not indifferent to the body. He cares about it. He puts a premium on how we make use of it. But I think we also have to be careful about what we obsess over because I certainly am empathetic to this idea of wanting to eat well and to eat within our means and to exercise. But I think we also probably, each one of us listening to this conversation can think of people who've taken that to the extreme and that become, become an idol as well. So there, there must be somewhere in the middle 
where we are focusing on the fact that the physical realm is important to God. And yet at the same time, we know that sin has defiled us completely and it's really embedded in our bodies. They will corrupt and decay. And so even if I eat the best possible foods, if I stay away from everything that every study has ever said that could cause cancer, which is almost every food, honestly, in some degree or another, there's no, because we believe in the sovereignty of God, there, there's no guarantee that I will not get sick and yeah. that I won't die from something that could be horribly painful and that might have been caused by some you know, environmental factor. There's just no way around it. So I like your idea of being wise and not getting too crazy about wh- how we think about our health, but also at the same time, not neglecting to take care of our health because when we take care of our bodies, we're at least taking care of our ability to perform ministry as God allows us to do it. And that is important. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll say one last thing and then we can wrap up is I think it's very clear to me that at times God presents us providentially with two options that are both. And at times we have to choose between. It's very it's, it's very rarely the case that all you have in front of you is a morally good option and just rank utter, right? Usually right, for it's, sure. it's a mixture of good options that, that we have to weigh out according to. And this right. to me strikes as a question of which moral good should I, right? And there's a presupposition sometimes that temporal physical enjoyment or even emotional enjoyment, temporal enjoyment is not necessarily a and that that is a that is an unbiblical assumption, right? Yes, the Bible exactly. all over the place tells us to enjoy the fruit of our life. Um, at the same time, we can get so wrapped up in the enjoy, the physical enjoyment that we overlook the other goods. So in this case, I have the moral good of taking care of my body, maximal health, whatever that means, and physical enjoyment or those two goods are in front of me and God doesn't there's no there's no passage that says thou shalt always favor physical health over it. There's no passage like that. And so what we're left with is God's prudence and his wisdom that he's given us in the Right on. I mean, this is a solid question because we would all agree that when you become in Christ, that so permeates all aspects of your life that certainly then it stands to reason that there must be some impact on your physical health, how you view your physical health. And so I think we're saying that thing at the same time, we know that even when you know, we speak of like the marriage supper of the lamb, the, that feasting, like you said, it talked about in Revelation specifically, that there is joy in that. There's a celebration that God does want us to enjoy the physical things he gives us without going into excess. And I think you're also right that it's not like you go into work and you're given the choice between, like you go into the break room and there's like donuts or cocaine. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> that's a... <laughs> That's like an easy choice. It might be like, depending on where you work. I guess. <laughs> that's that's true. I mean, hopefully nobody goes into work on you know, like Monday morning and they're like, you know, like a, a mass email goes out like there's cocaine in the break room. Help yourself. Um, <laughs> but but you're right. Like sometimes we, we tend to put it in those two groups. Like either you, you, if you, you should be super healthy or if you're if you're not and like your BMI is at a certain level, then is it possible that you're really sinning and you're not treating you know, the scriptures properly because of yeah. this whole idea of that your body is a temple. And, and I just want to wrap up by talking about the scripture really briefly, because I think it's okay in some ways to draw some inference from that. But that piece of scripture is really more about the moral filthiness that you're talking about. And Paul is particularly railing on sins of, you know, commission that are specifically sexual in nature, honestly, yeah. that are committed with your body. 
And so we probably should start there as opposed to just jumping right to you eat too much chips. Yeah. Um, we should spend more time thinking about the, the sexual sins that we're all prone to commit and what he's saying there about the purification of the body than just by saying, well, we need to go out and get some more exercise. So I would, I would encourage everybody to kind of look back into that text yeah. and, and see what's really happening there. Again, to your example of um, looking at the text in all of its fullness, that would be a wonderful place to start. Because that, that often, do you often hear that get used as kind of like a, uh, like any kind of Christian exercise program. Yeah. Like throws that verse down there. Yeah. I've heard someone argue against tattoos by calling it temple graffiti, which uh, is just a ridiculous idiotic yeah. argument. Yeah. And you know, this is beyond the scope of our conversation, but that is in first Corinthians and the Corinthians had this, the, all these crazy errors in understanding the body. And Paul is really addressing them there in a specific way. Yeah. So it, it, again, we, we don't have time to really get into that, but that might be another great cast. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, just by way of summary, like basically they reasoned that, you know, the body and food and drink and sex are all going to be destroyed in the end. So there only be these like free spirits. Right. So the body doesn't matter. So you can eat and drink and have sex in any way that you like because the body is morally irrelevant. So that's a totally different discussion than just like general health. Right. Exactly. And, and that's really what he's getting at getting after there. Yeah. But I, I think probably you and I end up somewhere in the middle, right? Like, yeah, to be healthy is good and we ought to pursue that goal. And also to like have a piece of cake. Yeah. Is also good. Yeah. I, I agree. You, cake is well, good. Real quick, what's your favorite cake? Uh, I like red velvet cake with cream cheese fries. Does it have to be? So I've only recently participated in this debate. I had no idea that red velvet cake is really chocolate cake. Yeah, it's so, diff a slightly different flavor. But yeah, it's basically just red. Is it though? It's basically just chocolate cake with red food color. So could somebody throw chocolate in there with the cream cheese frosting and you'd be cool? Or yeah, it I'd, be, I'd be cool with that. I'm not a purist. I'm colorblind <laughs> too, so... It's That's all brown ask. to me, so. I was going to say, yeah, what color is the red velvet cake to it's, you? It's like brown velvet. No, I, I can see brown, that. It's brown velvet. Yeah. Well, this has been great, Jesse. Thanks again for, for culling out these questions. Uh, for those who don't know, Jesse is the mastermind who picks all the questions. So if your question is not selected, you can blame him. <laughs> Angry emails can be sent to Jesse at Reformed Brotherhood. .com. Yes, I'm just kidding. Please. You, you do a great job picking good questions and building a theme. Appreciate that. And Jesse, if they would like to get their question on the show, what's that phone number in a month? The best way to leave us a voicemail is by calling, or the only way is by calling 607-444-2767. All right. This has been great. And I look forward to more questions and more question and answer casts. Uh, we do this the last Sunday recording of every month. And uh, we have a blast with it. So until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.